0: love talk radio good morning good afternoon good evening no matter where you're listening around the world this is Sedona talk radio and hello hello everyone out there in the big big world this is Helena Helena Spine I'm with you yet again and we are meeting with um, a new guest, a little bit different from our usual genre of guests. He's uh, an adventurer, almost, I would say. He's a yachtsman, and his name is Edward Muse. Edward, are you with me on the other side?
1: I am. Hello, Paulina.
0: Hello. <laughs> Hello, Ed. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. You sent me, Your can sent me the ebook of your book called Rising Above the Wave. And I didn't get time to read through it, but I was absolutely fascinated by this book because it hit me somehow. And maybe, Ed, you can mention the name of the book again and where people can get hold of it so we have it out of the way in case we forget it towards the end of the show.
1: I'd be happy to. And first, Helena, thanks for that great introduction, and thanks for the opportunity to tell my story. Uh, The book is Rising Above the Wave, and it's available through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and and iUniverse.com, or or listeners can call 1-800-AUTHORS.
0: Okay, sounds good. And I notice most people, you know, when people say, oh, come to my own home page and order through me, most people still like to be anonymous somehow and get it through Amazon.com or the local bookstore. So, Ed, you were like, uh, I would say, almost like everyone else, part of the American corporate world. And you had a longing in your heart. And what was that longing in your heart?
1: Well, my wife and I had a hobby over the years for almost 30 years, and that was to sail. And uh, we enjoyed racing, but our long term dream was to retire early, and we planned for many years to do that. And uh, that at 55, uh, we could uh, get a larger boat and sail around the world together. And There's so we followed before, yeah. that dream. Uh, in 2001, we left. Uh, we bought a large boat, and in 2001, we began our uh, circumnavigation.
0: And what is circumnavigation for those who are not in the yachting field out there?
1: Okay, fair enough. It's, uh, a circumnavigation is to make a trip around the entire world, and it can take anywhere from two years to, uh, some people take much longer, to ten or more years.
0: That's um, uh, great. But I saw something about you joined a race called the Blue Water Rally.
1: Yes. It's uh, actually a regatta. It's not a regatta, actually. It's, it's a uh, rally, which is a group of boats of like-minded people uh, who have a common purpose, and that is to travel together. Uh, and uh, it, it helps get through customs and immigration. Uh, it gets through the canals much easier and that puts you on a fairly tight schedule. You do it in two years, but it's a group of 20 boats who sail together. You rarely see each other at sea, but uh, you do meet on predetermined dates in ports. And there are uh, basically uh, 21 major ports, which is to say that the rally organizers have an advanced team that wait there for you uh, to help you through uh, all the paperwork. And on the other stops, you're on your own.
0: Yeah, and you had uh, uh, all kinds of adventures happen to you. Uh, not only the tsunami that we're going to speak about at length uh, in a little bit, but uh, evidently you were chased by pirates, and, and you had volcanic eruptions, and uh, th- this sounds so exciting. Particularly, you know, me living in in Florida, I'm very much aware of piracy of pirates. And it happens all the times that uh, boats disappear or people disappear. And, you know, it, it's a dangerous world out there. And some people who live in the nice comfort of European, you know, in land in Latin Europe, they don't realize that this is a fact. This is something I would like you to speak about a little bit more, about this international piracy and what pirates are about. And that's why many people sail together also.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, there's safety in numbers. There's all kinds of piracy, and uh, most sailors uh, know where pirate-infested waters are. Uh, the north coast coast of Venezuela is uh, a place that uh, you have to be very careful with. Uh, we were once boarded there. Uh, we made the mistake of anchoring on the north shore between Margarita and Trinidad, and we were boarded. Uh, We simply uh, stayed in our cabins, kept the doors locked. Uh, They took what they wanted, which wasn't much, and they left. Um, Another time in Indonesia, um, a boat came alongside. It was running stealth, which is to say they kept all their lights out. They didn't want us to see us. But uh, we have radar, and we have a night vision scope, and we saw them approaching. And the the key is uh, to prevent people from boarding your boat, uh, of course, yeah. once they board, you want to cooperate with them. You don't want to risk your life. But uh, we managed, every time he came close, uh, to turn into him and force him away. Uh, so he eventually gave up. The third time was uh, off Yemen, uh, the Hainish Islands. We were in horrific weather conditions, about 70 knot winds. And uh, my rudder, my prop shaft, pulled out and jammed my rudder, so we, we could not steer the boat and made the decision uh, to go to Yemen, which we knew in advance wasn't a good idea, but we had no choice. And uh, the Hainish Islands are pretty remote uh, there as you go up toward the Red Sea. And as we entered, a uh, high-speed boat came out with about 10 uh, motley-looking crew on it, all armed with AK-47s. Uh-huh. And uh, they sur- they went around us three times, but uh, I'm not sure why uh, they didn't board us, but the weather was so bad, and we were having our hands full uh, trying to manage the boat, and either they thought that it would be too difficult to board us in those conditions, or maybe they took pity on us. I'm not sure which. But yeah. they did leave, and uh, we went to shore and uh, anchored and repaired the boat, and the Navy came along the next day, and when we told them the story, they seemed rather interested in who these men might have been. But those are the three close calls that we've had. But most sailors, see, use uh, certain precautions. They travel in groups. um, They turn off all their running lights. They try not to use their radio or give away their position. Uh, When they do have to use their radio, they use it on very low power. Uh, mm-hmm. And they travel on predetermined coordinates that they never give to anybody, and uh, that's mostly yeah. what we do to prevent to protect ourselves against piracy. Yeah.
0: You know, we had uh, myself when we had this. This was a large, um, Trumpy actually, a hundred five foot uh, boat. I call everything that floats you can sit on a boat. <laughs> so, but, and we were outside. We were south of Florida, and there were some shallow waters there. And we had actually dropped the anchor just to spend the night uh, out there. And Sunday, from nowhere, there was this boat coming loaded with very, uh, you know, uh, mysterious-looking men. They looked, you know, like you imagine almost pirates, not dressed like that. But they were, like, uh, not, hadn't shaved, and they, 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 they almost had beards, beards. And they came up towards the boat on the side. Of course, we were so much bigger but they said, oh, you know, we have broken down, we need to come aboard and signal our friends uh, to come and help us, or can you help us, can we come aboard? And my husband, who stood there and watched this, he immediately picked up on the situation and asked the crew to get guns and rifles and come up to the rail and just show them that with all that, uh, with all the rifles particularly. And those people who were there on the ship, they disappeared in no time at all. There was nothing wrong. Uh, nothing wrong with their motors or whatever. They just wanted to get aboard. And I was pregnant at the time and was a little bit uncomfortable, I must say.
1: Well, you obeyed the basic rules. You knew what was happening out there. Some people don't do that. No. And uh, you certainly don't ever want to let anybody on your boat at sea. If they have a problem, you can help radio for help. Um, But no one should ever come on your boat at sea.
0: No, they shouldn't. There's no reason for it. But people are, you know, they listen and they want to be helpful because this is the old rule. Uh, And I know having sailed in Sweden, outside of the coast of eastern Sweden with all these little rocky islands, if you break down, someone stops and helps you, and that is just a good rule at sea, but it doesn't work anymore.
1: Especially in certain parts of the world, you have to be very careful about doing things like that. Yes. Uh, you know, if we're talking off the coast of the U.S. or Europe, I think it's fairly safe. But when you're talking about uh, parts of the South Pacific and in Indonesia, especially, You have to be very, very careful about this. Uh, And often it can be nothing more than a fisherman, we've found, who's out at sea for months at a time. He's very bored, and he wants nothing more than to trade uh, his fish for a carton of cigarettes you might have. But you still have to be very careful about this. And uh, we hide a, a radio on board somewhere, that if we are boarded, they'll often destroy your radio equipment, and we've got something to communicate with, uh, either before they board or after they leave.
0: Yeah, but these people have no scruples; they just uh, throw you overboard and take your your boat and move. You know, so that's why one should really be very, very careful. So, yes. but anyway, it's on a nicer note here. How uh, and I have great admiration for your wife for being so knowledgeable. Evidently, she's a very, very good yachtsman and navigator. Is it also? She is. Yeah, and she uh, had she shared your dream with you that you were going to get this uh, vessel, and you evidently got a very beautiful vessel, uh, a ketch, um, and uh, which is, if I understand right, a two-mast. Um, yes. Yeah and which is a beautiful boat. And um, I was aboard many of those racing rallies, those boats from the Whitbread and Volvo Ocean Race boats, and they had absolutely no comfort. <laughs> None <laughs> at all. <laughs> not, as, <laughs> Even, not
1: as you know it at home,
0: no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it was just like sleeping in shifts and, and uh, changing clothes, more or less. But you must have made it, it's a much like a nice place to be to be on your uh, boat
1: we make it as homey as possible and it makes it more comfortable that way by you know hanging pictures of the children and grandchildren up and personal things we bring to the boat from home but it is sparse and uh, you can't you can't bring your house into your boat it's not possible or your water line begins to sink so yeah. you, you've got to be aware of that. But we do personalize it and make it as homey as possible. And, uh, and it makes it good for especially my wife.
0: Yes, and particularly the a woman uh, who thinks in a very different way. We like that homey, spiritual feeling, really. When I call it really spirituality when you bring a little bit of your family with you and put that around you also. So... Uh, Uh, And I was thinking practically here you were two. Actually, you were three people aboard. You had your grandson with you as well.
1: We did. Uh, We always had a third person as crew. Uh, We took on our grandson. We had professional crew, and he had to leave. And uh, we thought of our grandson because he was floundering in his life, and we thought it would be a good good experience for him and help him, uh, well, for lack of a better word, uh, mature and grow up. And it did have that effect on him. He became very responsible, and uh, we saw a tremendous change in him. And the sea often does that uh, to yeah. even small children uh, that uh, live live on a boat because uh, they share and watches, uh, and they become responsible crew even when they're ten years old.
0: Yeah, that's great. How old was your grandson when he? Well, came he was away? older. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was 21 he was 21 oh ok
0: well that's but still a good a uh, time to mature I think it's uh, an important time for a young man to mature and uh, not everyone is ready yet at that time so uh, uh, with the food uh, since you were going to be which was the longest uh, you were at sea
1: the longest we were at sea was 23 days and that was from Galapagos to the island of Nukahiva in the Marquesas, which is part of French Polynesia. It took us 23 days on that trip. That yeah. was the longest, longest leg uh, in our circumnavigation.
0: So when you eventually hit land, it was like you were still walking over waves? <laughs> I mean, you have that feeling of, of boat well, you legs. Tend
1: to, and... Absolutely. When you yeah. get off the boat and walk on land, you feel like you're listing the one side or the other and you want to fall over. You lose your balance very quickly. Very quickly yes. but after a day or so on sure you're fine
0: did you have trouble making the food and the water last that long a time
1: well i have a water maker on board i cheat uh... Oh. and i can make up to forty gallons of water an hour it runs off the diesel engine so it's quite convenient so we have no shortage of water at any time um, we do carry bottled water for emergencies Um, um and food, we've got a, a big freezer. Uh, we don't have a Spartan-type existence. I have to admit that. I admire sailors who do that, however, but it's it's not me. And it makes it much more convenient for my wife and I to be able to take uh, frozen meat aboard and uh, dry goods in stores and keep them for extended periods of time. But I will tell you that in today's world that's no longer really necessary, even the, in the most remote parts of the world, you can always buy fresh meat and produce
0: yeah, did you fish off the boat at all did you just uh trawl or anything so you can pick up some some
1: Mo- most food? people do, but I'm not a fisherman
0: <laughs> oh okay <laughs> I have to
1: admit that we my crew is sometimes caught fish uh we had a Thai crew once and uh It was very funny because uh, we didn't realize, we thought they were Buddhist and they were Muslim, and so she bought pork. And when we left, uh, it was a long leg, and uh, we discovered they couldn't eat pork. And so they said, don't worry about it, and they fished every morning. They'd catch a tuner or something, and uh, we'd have fish soup for breakfast, fish soup for lunch, and again for dinner. And it was actually quite good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: well, Thai uh, Thai food is fantastic, I think. It is. is it truly is. The but world. they couldn't
1: yeah. eat what my wife had bought for them, pork. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and I hope you didn't mind the smell of, of pork. I'm a vegetarian myself, but I eat uh, seafood. But the smell right. of pork is still kind of from the old days when I like pork chop. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. We
1: don't eat much meat either, but we do eat it occasionally.
0: Yeah. So uh, here you were, uh, came to various places, and you ended up somewhere along the line in Thailand. We did. Yeah. Uh,
1: we had. Um, I had been to Thailand many times on business over the years, and so we looked very much forward to returning to Thailand. Uh, we had a lot of friends there, and uh, we were we had we were going to be in Thailand uh, to celebrate Christmas and the group we were with decided to pick a small very beautiful island in off Phuket Thailand called uh-huh. PP Don Island and as you as you probably know that's the uh, uh that's the thing in my book about the tsunami it was ground zero of the tsunami unfortunately yeah. Yeah. but it's uh, it was a beautiful beautiful island and uh, we had we were there christmas day and uh, had a big dinner together with the other boats and the following morning is when the tsunami happened.
0: And, you know, um, I know so much about, of course, I've never been to Thailand, but I have so many friends. Of course, as you know, Thailand is full of Swedes, full of Swedish tourists and Swedes who have bought homes there. So... I have heard firsthand from people who were caught in the tsunami, or I have firsthand friends who were never found after the tsunami. So I think just about every person in Sweden has someone, uh, knew someone directly or indirectly who was involved in the tsunami. So it sits very closely to my heart. And of course, still now, when I fly into the airport of Stockholm, there is always a big Jumbo jet from Thailand sitting there, uh, unloading or loading people to fly off to Thailand. <laughs> yep. so there you were, and you were walking with your wife. You had your boat docked somewhere uh, also uh, at shore there somewhere on the island.
1: Yes, my my boat was uh, anchored uh, just offshore, and uh, okay. my grandson, uh, we decided to leave aboard on uh, not wake him because he had been out the night before and quite late so my wife and I went to shore that morning to have breakfast on the island um and most of the people on the island were actually uh swedish or norwegians uh they were from all over the world but most yeah. were swedes and norwegians yeah and it's a, a a mega uh vacation resort and it was unfortunately fully crowded there were six hotels and after breakfast my wife and I walked back to the shore And strangely, we discovered uh, that there was about 20 feet of water had dropped. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. I've seen tides, but not water like that suddenly disappear. And uh, we had never heard of the word tsunami or certainly didn't know the telltale signs of one. And so uh, we began, our, our dinghy, our inflatable, was now on the beach, no longer in the water. And we began dragging it toward the water when we saw what looked like a thin white foam line on the horizon.
0: Uh And
1: uh, we knew something was wrong. We didn't know what it was. But uh, after watching it, it seemed to be moving toward us incredibly fast. Tsunamis can move up to easily 300 miles an hour. So Uh, it was coming on us pretty quickly. And uh, I said to Helen, "Forget forget the inflatable. We're going to hold hands and run back toward the beach and to the island for safety, yeah. and we got about halfway there, and I looked over my shoulder and saw that it was coming too fast, and it was too big to outrun it, so I said to my wife, we're not going to outrun it. Let's just stand here and bear hug, and we'll wait for it,
2: wow. and uh, whatever
1: you do, don't let go of me. I knew if we were separated, I'd never see her again. Yeah. So I just focused on bear-hugging her, and as the wave came, I remember leaning into the wave and digging my foolishly digging my feet into the sand as though I could resist it. And uh, when it, the wave hit us, uh, I guess it was 30 feet high, but uh, you have to realize that in a tsunami, it's the whole ocean moving, not just the wave.
0: Yeah, I was um, just wondering how high that wave uh
1: what? The wave was about 30 feet, but, but the problem is behind the the whole ocean moves from the surface to the floor. So it's not just a wave. After the wave hits you, the whole ocean is rushing over you, and it holds you on the bottom. There's, there's no swimming in a tsunami. It's about ah. holding your breath. And yeah. uh, it, it swept us, uh, and we hit palm trees, um, fortunately. And... Um, My wife was in shock at that point. She was just staring blankly out at the horizon, but I I held her and I said, uh, we've made it, it's okay. And about 20 seconds later, I heard what sounded like a freight train, and that was the big wave. And as I turned, it hit us, and that took out everything. Um, It took out the trees we were pinned against and held us on the bottom and took us underwater uh, from from the North Shore to the South Shore, which is to say... Um, it took us across the island. Uh, we were running out of air and managed to surface once. And then when I surfaced with Helen, I realized that we were now really in trouble because we had actually crossed the island and were going out to sea. But it forced wow. me to the bottom again.
0: Yeah. and you were hanging on. You were holding each other still. I mean, you were still in this bag yeah. yeah, she
1: mm-hmm. was. She was unconscious at that point. Um, but I yes, know, I cannot
0: believe you were not crushed by the waves. You know, I know. Well, where I see people. Everybody there. else
1: was. We were very yeah. probably one of the few people that survived,
0: um,
1: and we were very fortunate. I don't know how or why we survived, uh, but we did. And uh, when we got the second time, when I I couldn't break the surface, there was uh, six hotels had. Um, broken up, and everything was floating uh, on the top of the water, uh, yeah. modular bathrooms, um, mattresses suitcases, and you couldn 't break through the surface, so uh, I thought we had had it at that point i just about ready to give up when my hand grabbed something solid. it happened to be a uh, propeller shaft on a Thai canoe, which was probably the only one left that hadn 't been turned over, and I used it to break through the surface of the water. Uh, Helen was still unconscious. Uh, and the man, there was a man in the canoe, a Thai man, and he was in shock because he had just lost his family. And, uh, I did manage to get him to help my wife into the canoe. Um, had
0: he been floating all along ever since the tsunami came in, or the waves came in? He had in? been
1: fishing on that side of the island, and, uh, they were probably, uh, well over a hundred Thai canoes, and only a couple survived. The others all turned over, and people drowned.
0: Mm-hmm. Most yeah. people
1: were swept out to sea. They never knew it hit them. Yeah. Um, and uh, when we broke through the water, that's when we realized uh, how bad it really was. When I look back at the island, it was the island had hundreds of shops, had boardwalks, had ferries, had hotels, uh, everything, and it was all gone. It was just uh, just sand um, and debris. Um, so when I got into the canoe. It was uh, probably the worst part of it. Uh, there was an upside-down steel fishing boat uh, coming down on us pretty quickly. It was drifting toward us, and we were caught in debris. It was almost unable to move the canoe, but there were people around screaming for help. They were just sort of holding on. Yeah. And it was about to come down on us, and uh, I said to the pilot, we have to leave. If we don't leave, we're going to be crushed in seconds. And we left, and uh, that was probably the hardest part. Um, leaving those people. Yeah. And uh, we saw on the horizon a, a very large wooden boat coming toward us, um, and it happened to be, uh, strangely enough, with a Swedish flag.
2: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, well, we yeah, the Swedish
0: flag. <laughs> <we got, yeah, laughs>
1: I got the, uh, the fisherman in the Thai canoe. I, um, we managed to get out of that debris and, and just away from the fishing vessel in time. Yeah. or we would have been crushed by it. And we, yeah. I got him to take us out toward that boat, and when we got there, the Swedish captain says, um, your boat is, you know, my boat is your boat. What do you want to do? And I said, well, if my wife's going to survive, we've got to get her to a hospital, which was three hours away. But yeah. he fortunately had oxygen on board, and we were able to keep my wife breathing with oxygen. It wasn't until we got to Phuket that uh, we realized just how bad this really was. Um, uh... we landed it we couldn't find a place to land uh... was the hard part because everything had been wiped out but we did manage to find in a sheltered area a concrete dock and we got up to a hotel and they took us to the hospital it was only when we got to the hospital we realized how bad it was there were people laying everywhere in the hallways outside yeah. uh... there you had to step over people and i got helen uh, into the emergency room and they were just absolutely incredible um... They didn't care uh, what nationality you were. They didn't care what country you were from. They didn't care how much money you had. It made absolutely no difference. Uh Uh, It was, um, you know, incredible, and um, they're just wonderful people. And Uh my wife spent uh, 12 days in the hospital, and uh, she almost died. She got pneumonia, which was the major problem, and a good part of that time was in intensive care. But uh, she did survive, and the American ambassador came to the hospital and to see her, and he said, well, I guess you're going to go home now. And my wife said, if I, you don't mind me quoting her, she said, like how I am. She said, I didn't come this <laughs> yeah. far to quit. And uh, she recovered quickly. We had her rent an apartment because she had some damage. that She had to recover. But we did go back on the boat and continue our adventure.
0: It's absolutely remarkable. And how was your grandson, who had been evidently on your boat during the waves, you know, the tsunami coming in? Well, was he, he had, okay, and how was your boat?
1: Well, he, he, was, uh, he hurt his arm. Uh, the boat took, about, uh, took some damage, but uh, it was all re- repairable. And, uh, but psychologically, he was affected. Uh, he was really a good sailor, and um, we were hoping he would go get his license and become a professional sailor, mm-hmm. but uh, it frightened him. And uh, he did leave. He said he never wanted to go on a boat again, and we tried to convince him this would never happen in a thousand years, but he had made up his mind this was not for him, yeah. and so he left, which was unfortunate, but it was his decision to make. So.
0: Well, it still must have changed his life uh, and given some kind of value to his life, though, uh, to did. have gone through this experience.
1: It definitely did. We talked. We visited Mike a couple of years later. Uh, he lives in Georgia, and we visited him there. And uh, Mike told us that it had changed his life, and he had gotten there a, a good job. Uh, he had become a supervisor, uh, mm-hmm. and these were things he wouldn't have done before he had gone to sea. So yeah. uh, we felt it was worth it, and we were very pleased with how far he had come.
0: Yeah. How... Uh... Uh, you know, did this change? How did the tsunami change your life, uh, and uh, how did it change your your look, the way you looked at death, life, and death on the whole?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I guess there are two few answers to that. Um, as far as death goes, um, I there was an experience I'll never forget. I think when I was trapped underwater, I. I I remember saying to myself, it's over, there's no point in fighting this, and I wonder how long it takes to die. I remember asking myself that question. And and when that happened, I think an incredible feeling of peace came over me that I never had before. It was just an indescribable feeling that I never had before or after. And I've I've heard somebody else tell me that that yeah, and that I wonder.
0: can I also say that myself when I've been close to death or I just knew I was going to die. You have this overwhelming feeling of peace, of calm. Yes. Yes. You cannot
1: describe
0: that. Yeah.
1: No, you can't describe it.
0: No, you cannot. And describe I, it.
1: I think that's my feeling. And it certainly, you know, I guess I used to look at death as something uh... you don't want to think about and now after that experience i think i view it slightly differently certainly i don't want to rush out and die tomorrow but, but uh... i don't view it i don't view it with the same fear that i would have before it doesn't seem to frighten me anymore it seems like a a peaceful thing
0: yeah it's part of life in a way and uh, i have the philosophy myself that uh... life is a continuation and uh, that Death, in a way, is part of life uh, in the same way as birth is.
1: Yes. Uh, and,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, and the I other mean, part of your. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, no. That's, uh, I, I want to hear what you say, and then I'm going to come up with my question. <laughs> okay. All right.
1: You, you, the other part of your question, I think, was how did it change my life? And it certainly changed my life in many ways. Um, I don't want to go into the detail of this, but I think I no longer see myself as the same person. But more importantly, uh, I think I no longer take each day for granted. Um, I try to leave each day to the fullest. I remember asking myself, um, after I had recovered from some of the after-effects of the tsunami, the emotional after-effects, I remember saying to myself, now what is it I really want to do with my life? And I I asked myself that question, and I said, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do was write. It was something I just wanted to do. And and I began writing, and, and I, I found uh, two things come from that. I, I found that um, it, it was a part of the healing process to write, which is why I wrote a book about the tsunami. And uh, I've gone on to write other books also, and uh, they're part of who I am now. And they're yeah. just things that I wanted to do in life, and now I'm doing them because I can't put them off anymore because I figure <laughs> I don't know how much time i have i don't no. take that for granted as i once did yeah. so i do the things i always wanted to do uh, and, and, I notice, yeah, I. Yeah, and i
0: noticed yeah and i notice that people who have gone through death and people who have looked death directly in the eye they have become like you are now they live life at its its fullest they do as much as they can to enjoy life when you have it right. is that so
1: i i think that's so yes
0: yeah how and yeah no it's 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 uh, it's really you know I lived life uh, also at the full <laughs> at my fullest, right. but i've gone through life and death several times, and that 's why I have such joy at my life and laugh a lot and, and really have the appetite on living more so um, one thing I wanted to ask you here a little while ago was how Did you experience the divine throughout your time uh, at sea? I know myself how wonderful it felt to sit up and watch the stars that you never see otherwise uh, in the city. You forget there are stars. You don't even know there are stars. Uh, But when you sit there alone, it's just you and spirit, so to speak. Uh, did you experience that a lot and you, did your wife experience that?
1: Absolutely. Um it's very tranquil tranquil and peaceful at sea and we would often um in the middle of the night, uh would lay up on the deck sometimes when the when it was the ocean was flat, would lay up on the deck and uh just stare up at the sky and wait to watch uh meteors. And sometimes it was a whole show we'd see at certain times of the month. Um, and you'd listen to whales, uh, this, the, uh, the the noises they make when they communicate with each other, uh, reverberate off the hull. And it's, it's a very moving experience. You feel almost um, one with nature, and it's something that um, comes at sea, but you don't often feel on land because you're surrounded by so many distractions on land. And so we would often do that at night, just sit, and sometimes Helen and I would take... Uh, three- and four-hour watches, which means uh, she'd be up at the helm uh, steering and setting the sails and watching for ships, and I'd be down below sleeping. And it's, it's remarkable, uh, the things you hear and the things you see, and it's very moving. You, you uh, go off watch with a very peacefulness about you. It's a remarkable experience being at sea. It's maybe one of the few places left uh, around the world and in life that you can really appreciate nature.
0: Yeah, it's so true, and that was exactly the question I really wanted to have answered, or the answer I was looking for with you. And uh, it's such a wonderful feeling to experience nature again, and the universe, you know, this extension of yourself that you have around you when you sit there alone with the the, uh, stars, so to speak. One of my favorite books uh, when I grew up... um, I was, uh, I remember I was 12 years old and my father bought me a book. It was called Contiki, if you remember, the float. Or a Doll, yeah. You know. Yes, a Higher Doll. And he's still alive and I hope to actually meet him now in May in Sweden. But uh, he. Um, uh, wrote about the connection with, with nature being out there among the waves. And they took pictures, and I still have that book, you know, I've traveled with that book. <laughs> and I lived in different parts of the world, and somehow that book has been in my bags or in my boxes, I would say, and I have it here in my bookcase in Miami. Mm-hmm. Because I was so fascinated just being so close to the waves and close to this power that I didn't know too much about. So I've always been fascinated by the wind and the water and the togetherness and the boating and where it would take me. And you, Dad, lived that dream, and you still do. So you haven't stopped anywhere, have you? So what happened now? You were in in Thailand uh, with the tsunami and survived the tsunami. And what happened next?
1: Well, we went on. With the rally um, i uh, my uh, i couldn't in order to stay in the rally, my wife wasn't released by the hospital um, she had to recover, so uh, I had professional my grandson left, and I hired professional crew to take my boat on to the next port and then, when my wife recovered, we flew uh, to the next port to meet up uh, with the boat and continue and I kept that crew on through Egypt. Uh, and then my wife and I sailed alone. And when we got to the Mediterranean, uh, we went to Turkey and um, uh, absolutely fell in love with Turkey. Uh, it's a remarkable country, not only for an- its antiquities, but yeah. uh, few people know much about Turkey. But it's it's one of the places, and it was the birth of Christianity. It's one of the places in the world where... Uh, muslims and christians and jews and everybody else have lived together peacefully for centuries and they still do um and it's just a wonderful uh place and we've made wonderful friends um i was telling you before that uh, one of my one of our closest friends are swedish neighbors um mm-hmm. that also feel as we do and and now live they go back every year like we do to the us they go to sweden but they they live in turkey because of the wonderful uh... lifestyle there and it's also uh, a place to sail it's incredible sailing coast and we use turkey to sail to the eastern mediterranean uh... because we love going there
0: Yeah, and do you find these waters to be fairly safe yes very
1: um, there's no concern in turkey uh... for example um, I found in my experience, unlike what I'm used to seeing on television, I found um, in certain parts of the world that the poorer people are, the more they, they want to share with you. And we've had remarkable experiences in that way. Um, I can go out at 2 in the morning in Turkey and not have to worry about my safety. Um, there's no such thing in Turkey as the concept of a street gang um we've gone to Syria we've gone to Lebanon we've gone to Israel and Egypt and uh while safety has to be defined differently in each place we've always felt both welcome welcomed as Americans and safe there uh which uh, whenever i tell that to people they look at me as though this can't be <laughs> but it's our experience
0: yeah no well I- Of course, uh, me being uh, Swedish, I'm very familiar with all countries around the Mediterranean, so I feel very much at home there. Turkey is, uh, do you feel it's a country where you can speak English, they will understand you?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, I think it depends where you are in Turkey. We've been all over Turkey. I I think um, if you go to the European parts of Turkey, Um, If you go to Istanbul, I think, uh, you can always find in restaurants and stores people that speak English, Uh, and you can get along fine. In the area where we live, which is Bodrum, which is considered the uh, St. Tropaz of the Eastern Med, uh, also, Mm -hmm. a lot of people speak English. As you move to central Turkey and eastern Turkey, you'll find fewer and fewer people speak English, and uh... my wife is learning turkish she's doing fairly well with it Um i'm not sure i'll ever learn turkish it's a very difficult
0: language <laughs> it's a different language very different language i can language. say cat
1: and dog and uh, order a drink and my check and but beyond that i rely on my wife to communicate
0: that's very good so but what language uh, what foreign language do you think is 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 it possible to use any foreign language except for turkish
1: in Turkey. Uh, yeah, in Turkey. Well, a lot of uh, Turks speak uh, German.
0: I know uh, that because, because when I went to University of Munich, there were many Turkish students there. Yes. And, of course, they had to pick up German.
1: Yes. And there are a lot of, uh, there were are, there, the area we live in. As you move along the coast, um, the the tourist areas uh, where we live, uh, it tends to be uh, a lot of English. No Amer- you find very few Americans coming to Turkey. Um, or, and certainly, even fewer living there. But you do find a lot of Germans in our area. Um, you find um, um, very few French. Um, you'll find some some English and Swedes, um, uh, and if and some Norwegians. But you have to go further south uh, for the Dutch. And we find very few French in Turkey. And I'm not huh? sure of the causes of all this. Um, but a lot of, because there's so many Germans coming a lot of a lot of turkish people do speak german
0: okay i just want to learn kind English of show the globality of it all that we somehow uh, move all over the world and uh, that we can still cope so um, one thing that uh, i remember also reading throughout your book that came back a lot was that uh, you could not, you had a little bit trouble forgiving yourself for not helping all those people who were still left in the waters in the tsunami, and that it it was tough for you to get over that. And when I read that, I felt, oh, he shouldn't make that judgment, that hard judgment on himself, because this was a miracle that you and your wife were saved. And look at it as not the guilt part of it, but as a miracle part of it. You were given your life and your wife was given her life uh, as a gift from the universe or from God or what you call it. It was a gift to you. So if you begin to look at it that way instead as a miracle and you should be grateful instead of helping all those people. You know, we cannot all save the world. We cannot do that, you know. I wish myself I could save all the sick people and and people out there who need help, but I can't. And um, I hope you have kind of overcome that by now.
1: I don't know that I've overcome that. I I think uh, um, your words um, are very similar to what Oprah Winfrey once said to me. She said exactly the same thing. And my answer to her was, when someone reaches out to you with a stick, begging you to grab it, to pull them aboard, and you can't reach them and you have to leave them. Um, It's very difficult to live with that. I I think what happens over time is um, it's less about forgiving yourself and more about just learning to accept it and what happened. Um, But you don't forget it. You don't forgive yourself. You just learn to live with it, and I think I've learned to live with that.
0: Yeah, and still look at it in gratitude that you were given the gift of living together with yes, your wife. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> certainly is a gift. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I also have no you idea. know, no
1: it, idea. Yeah, it's very strange, do, but uh, yeah,
0: you do a lot of good right now, telling the story about what you've gone through. So for that reason, you had to be saved also, and there, there is always a reason for someone being saved.
1: I, so. I guess there is. <laughs> yeah. Yes <laughs> there is. I I know when it first happened I wasn't grateful for being saved. I said, "Why did it have to be me?"
0: Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. went
1: through that whole sort of uh post traumatic stress disorder type stuff that anybody would go through after a traumatic experience like that. And and you go through a series and levels of feelings and uh reproaches and you get to the point where you just sort of finally say, "Okay, it happened and I just have to move on." Um, and that's where I am today. I've just moved on, um, and that's where I am.
0: Yeah, and now in the process here of getting your wife well again, and you came across the Eastern doctors, and and how would you compare the treatment in the so-called Oriental Eastern hospitals by the Eastern doctors to the ones of the West and our culture?
1: It's very interesting that you ask me that because um, a group of doctors had invited me to a, a meeting to discuss that very subject and, and, uh, in South Africa once, and what I told them was that I found um, in the East, um, incl- you know, from Thailand to China and uh, India, what I found is that doctors um, treat not only the body. Um, they're, they're very conscious of the need to treat not just the body but the mind and the soul. And if my experiences with doctors there is the first thing they hand you is their private cell phone number and say they know, understand the emotion, they understand what you're feeling, you're worried, and they say, if you have any questions or I can help you, call me. And and I think that's an important point because I find I'm not going to say I don't find that in the West, but I find much less of it. It isn't part of the Western culture. It's yeah. sort of like um, we'll treat your body, but you take care of your soul and your mind and your heart, and and we'll treat your body. And it, 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 they try to be imp, almost impersonal about it. Yeah. And when you separate those things, I think it's hard to heal a person. Hard to heal a person. So. You know, my experience, and I've traveled to Asia for many, many years on business and had this experience many times, is that I think it's a more well-rounded form of healthcare and medicine in Asia because of the understanding of what a whole person really is. And I, I find that to some extent missing here. It becomes almost impersonal. Does that yes. make sense?
0: Yes. Uh, that makes perfect sense because, of course, the doctors in the East, they were themselves brought up to more spirituality and more connection with your soul. They had that in them from the start, so it would be a natural thing for them to even bring that into their medical care. Whereas here in the West, we don't, uh, we are not geared that way. We are not into the meditation normally. We are not into spirituality normally. So we make a little distinction between our spiritual, ourselves, uh, uh, me, the spirit, and me, the body. They're like two separate things, two separate entities in the West, whereas in the East is part of the same package.
1: Right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's been my experience.
0: Yeah. Of, uh, and that is what we are changing now very much um, in, the, in the healthcare system in Sweden, which is socialized medicine. The new administration now are going to bring in all kinds of alternative uh, care. And I have myself done a meditation in the Swedish uh, Riksdag, in the Swedish parliament. Oh, <laughs> uh, <okay>. uh, yes. <laughs> Just to bring in that side of the healthcare because we regard this as part of what we all are, you know, spiritual, the spiritual you, the spiritual right. side of ourselves. So right. that now, when you travel outside, and you of course you saw the Swedish flag on one ship there, and you yourself you sailed under the American flag. Did you notice any special treatment for or against that? Uh-
1: no, I didn't, to be honest, but I expected to find that. I expected to experience uh, anti-American sentiment, but I didn't. Um, and I actually wrote a book about that experience. Ah. <laughs> because what I did discover around the world, uh, even including the East, is that people tend to give you the benefit of the doubt. They tend to separate between the, the, the governed, you know, the, the governor and the governed. They yeah. tend to separate between government and the people, and they'll ask you for example very interesting uh, people would uh when people would ask me where are you from i'd say "Oh America there'd certainly be a certain silence you know if I were in the <laughs> mid East I'd want to know all about America, but especially with Europeans, I found a real silence yeah. and uh after um our new president Obama won, people would say to me, "Where are you from and instead of saying america i'd say Obama and they'd say oh they were all excited you see
0: (laughs) (laughs) makes a big big difference now it it, America went through a very tough time there for a while with the past administration how people looked at it because there was definitely a separation in philosophy between America and the rest of the world at the time
1: it was a disconnect I think yeah with the rest of the world and and that is healing I think now
0: And, you know, basically, Americans have always been loved in the world. Always. I mean, with certain things that, you know, you don't like about certain people and so on. But me being European, it was always nice with an American. And we we would discover Americans anywhere, you know, wherever you went. Even if you went hiking in the mountains of Sweden, you would come across an American. A nice, round, jolly American. And... (laughs) So uh, they've they've been liked um, at, at one point, of course, when they came with too many uh, dollar notes, you know, and kind of bragged that around. People didn't like that after the war, but uh, no, it, it's it's uh, Americans are basically loved. So that was such a disappointment what happened during the last eight years uh, that people turned again, again turned against America but not against the individual that they were meeting in the street, no. No,
1: just to the contrary. We had gone to Syria a couple of years ago. We sailed there, and uh, the Syria and the U.S. are not very close, as you know, and I'm I'm required by international maritime law to fly my uh, my, uh, flag on the stern. I have a large American flag, and I was going with another boat, and he said to me, would you mind getting a smaller flag? (laughs)
0: Oh, But but strangely,
1: when I got to Syria, um, I guess because I had radioed, I was coming in and identified myself as an American. A bunch of fishing boats came out to see me and greet me. And uh, when I saw my flag, they wanted me to know that I was welcome to their country. And so they began blowing horns and cheering. And when I got to shore, I found an American flag was raised. So I, I found this... Um, in a lot of places around the world. People are accepting of you. We all have common denominators of things we can relate to. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been to some interesting places. I mean, I have I was working on a book called Ahmed from America, and, and I went to, um, you know, Hezbollah uh, controlled areas and talked to militants. And in the end, you know, when you get beyond the politics, in the end what people really care about, is the things that are most important to them in life and it's often their families their children their health care uh... it's very fascinating it's very fascinating but you have to be willing to get to know people and travel i think traveling is wonderful and uh... we try to encourage our grandchildren to do that
0: yeah it's so important i think also to learn how to communicate even if you don't speak the same language because you cannot know everyone's language in the world but intuitively, you can still speak to people and uh, through the feelings with them. And everyone likes love. Everyone has a love for family or their pets uh, or whatever, you know, or for food, you know. People love good food. So we all like that freedom and that uh, it, it gives us, you know, to be able to, 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 to experience the love for the families. Yes. And that goes for everyone, everywhere. And uh, I am, like you, very much for traveling and seeing the world. And, of course, I haven't done it with, on boats as much as I have it. I've been, been traveling with camels through the desert. And then meeting people in the desert, uh, of course, I had my friends with me. But then we had to meet and we had to share a meal together. And how you know, as you said before, those people who have no money or no riches in any world, how they are the most generous ones, how they are the ones who want to give you everything they have. And I noticed that in the inland of Russia even, and I came across those people who had nothing, and they wanted to give you your candlesticks, (laughs) their crystal, whatever they could find that was of value as a gift. So uh, that is something you see a, a lot of everywhere in the world. Is there anything that your wife would like to tell the world as a memory of, of, of this particular voyage? Uh, does she have a message? I mean, we have been speaking to you now for an hour almost. Is there anything that she would like to say out to the world or she's saying to you that is of importance as an experience to mm-hmm. her?
1: Would you like to talk to her briefly?
0: Uh, is she sitting next to you?
1: <laughs> I will call her. She's right here. Hold on.
0: Yeah. Helen? Okay.
1: Hurry.
0: So she's Helen on the way. Is here.
1: I'll put her on.
0: Okay. There and on her way. Ed. Hello, Helen. And you know, you have been so much on my mind also throughout this um uh, Interview with your husband because it always takes a strong woman to 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 be by the side of a man. You know, yes, what course? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> what of course. what was your big experience from the whole trip, Helen?
2: From the whole trip. Oh my goodness! Yeah. It was just this. meeting different people that was uh, relating to all of them, and uh, seeing the antiquities and things that are around. It it was just amazing. Uh, to go and see something in China, you know, where uh, it's four thousand years old, and uh, then I was allowed. To, I, I, inter Well, I got intimate with a few of the women, and uh, yeah. they speak. You know, right away they'll let you in. And I, when we were in, uh, I think it was uh, Lebanon, we. Were, I went into the shower room to take a shower, and uh, it was. Um, it was just amazing. I, I spoke to this woman just for a few moments, and she was saying how glad she was that I had come, you know, all the way from America to see the country, and, and how they were worried about the war getting worse and everything. Yeah. And uh, as we went to say goodbye, you know, I put my hand out to, to shake her hand, and we just clung to one another. We just took one another in our arms, and uh, it was just such a feeling of oneness with another woman. It was marvelous.
0: You know, this is so wonderful to hear that from you because this is exactly in the world uh, that I have noticed as a woman and when I speak to the women, what oneness we experience. And it's that oh, yes. energy that we have between us, not of power. Of course, with the male energy, a bit you see more of the control. You have to have control of the situation, whereas the right. women just let go and, and let their heart speak. Right, but I feel Please your husband is a there, yeah. very heart-centered person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I really do. More.
0: Yes. So, yeah, I wish you a very wonderful trip back to Turkey in a few days.
2: Yes, and, I can't um,
0: wait. And uh, I suppose you will have wonderful Mediterranean weather where you're going to be.
2: Mhm. Yes, it'll be wonderful. But the best so, part will be I'll be back with my friends there.
0: Yes, and that's great. So thank you very much, Helen, uh, for coming on for just a few minutes. But it was very valuable what you had to say, particularly from the standpoint of a woman. Yes, and, yes. and that, uh, you know, this oneness that we all have together. And that is actually part of my work to bring out the feminine energy in the world. Oh wonderful! So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I can have a final word with your husband and thank you again, Helen, and have a good trip.
2: Okay, thank you, my dear. Thank just you. one moment now.
0: Thank you. Hi, Helena. Yes, there we go. So once more, Ed, just let us know where we can find your book and how people can read more about you and your websites and uh, and uh, the names of your books. Okay. We have uh, uh, one minute and a half.
1: Okay. The books are <laughs> available through noble dot com, Amazon dot com, dot com. They can call one eight hundred authors. Uh I do have uh, a few websites. Uh Edwardmuch M U E S C H dot com and also EdMueschBooks.com. dot com. Um the books, uh, I've written four books. I'm working on my fifth. They're Rising Above the Wave, about the tsunami. Personal Best, Chasing the Wind Above and Below the Equator, which is about our circumnavigation. Ahmed from America, My Travels in the Mideast and Meeting People. And finally, my first novel called The Land of Men. It's about the island of Nuka Hiva and the Marquesas. And
0: it's that's fascinating. It. That's fantastic. I thank you very much, Ed Muse. And this is Helena Steiner Hornstein speaking to you through our wondrous world in Miami, and I wish you all a very wonderful week. I will be back next week with you again with a new fascinating guest. Thank you, Ed, so very much. Thank you, Helen, very much. And have a wonderful day, all of you. Again, Helena from www.speakingtoyourheart.com. Thank you. Bye-bye.